David, a man after God's own heart, part 15. The title of our message this morning is a question, who am I? 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses 18 to 29. These are challenging times that we are living in, aren't they? But long before COVID appeared on the scene, there was already a a shift in this generation's approach to how they view God. A few years ago, a survey was was done of of young adults and the conclusion is that their their faith is is more characterised by a, a moralistic, therapeutic deism. The idea being that if we live good lives and if we're kind to one another, then God will provide therapeutic benefits to us like self-esteem and and happiness. Other than that, uh, if if you haven't heard the word deism, deism is is the idea that God is not much involved in our world anymore. He created and then he is basically removed, so he's not involved in our day affairs, day-to-day affairs. This distant God is not demanding because his job is to solve problems and make people feel good. There is nothing, certainly nothing in this, in this God to evoke wonder and admiration. So the thought goes. Now this is in total contrast to the faith of the man whom God called a man after his own heart. By this stage in his life, David has consolidated his kingdom. He has brought up the ark and placed it on Mount Zion in Jerusalem in a tent. He has built a palace of cedar for himself. And for the moment, God has given David some breathing space from his enemies. That's We read about this last week at the beginning of chapter 7. Also last week, we saw how David, during this period of of calmness, turns his thoughts to building a house, a temple for God. Now God denies his request and instead promises to build a house for David, a dynasty. David desired to do something for God, to bless the Lord, but the Lord desires, promises to bless David. That's so much like God, isn't it? So the passage before us is David's magnificent response to God. Now let's highlight again the fact that David does this after being told no by God. And through this prayer, David marvels at the blessing and the promises of God. His view of God had a real impact in the way that he lived his life and on his own identity before the sovereign Lord. He was God's servant. And we read this in the, in the way that he lived his life and, and certainly in the Psalms that he wrote and in the prayer that he prayed. So the verses before us give us some important instruction 
on the matter of prayer because this is actually the prayer that David prays in response to God after God promises to bless David and his dynasty. So the first uh, instruction for us on the matter of prayer is the place and posture, verse on the first part on verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and he said, In the previous chapter we saw how David was rejoicing and leaping and dancing and offering sacrifices before the Lord as the ark was being brought up to Jerusalem. And we began this chapter with David and his, in his opulent cedar palace contemplating the unjust contrast between his palace, the magnificence of his palace and the humble tent that was nearby where the ark of God was housed. There was this inequality. But after hearing of God's response to his plans, he is overwhelmed by the promises of God. And so he leaves his palace and moves into the humble tent and he sits before the Lord. And even before he utters his prayer, we can see the impact, the big impact of the word of God through the prophet Nathan upon his heart. He's speechless, he's awestruck, he's lost in the wonder of God's grace and he sat before the Lord in humility and began to pray. This was just between him and God. No other distractions, no one else. Now in the Bible we see, we often see the variety of postures that God's children take while praying to their God. Some like to stand, others kneel, some prostrate themselves before God, while many others, like David, simply sat before the Lord. Ultimately, the physical position of your body is not as important as the spiritual position of your heart. A quiet place with no distractions is the best place to come to God in his tabernacle. In the Gospels, Luke tells us that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. He withdrew to lonely places and prayed. It was just between him and his father. And he instructs us, Jesus instructed us to do the same. In Matthew 6, 6, this is what he told us. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. And then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Some wonderful words there from our Master and Lord on the matter of prayer. So that's the, our posture and the place where we pray. What about the content of our prayer? How does that look? Well, the second part of, of this prayer of David instructs us in that matter as well. There is prayer and praise from verses 18 to 24. Now let's remember that in the language of the Bible, 
praising God means to declare what he has done and what he is like. This is especially true in the Psalms. Praise does not have to involve music, as we know, but often does. The essential thing is that the the great deeds of the Lord, as well as his power and goodness, are being made known. David, who was overwhelmed, he praises God for two main things. Firstly, for what he has done, in verses 18 to, to 21, for what he has done. Who am I, sovereign Lord, that, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? As if this were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. And this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, sovereign Lord. And for the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. Now, please note here, David asks, who am I? He's not asking, well, who am I? He is not suffering from amnesia, you know, where he forgets who he is. Let's just get that straight. And even though it is still, it is still a question of identity, he doesn't forget who God is, because his identity is linked to who God is. And this makes all the difference. David's attitude wasn't, I am so great that even God blesses me. His attitude was, God is so great that he blesses even someone like me. David recognized that he is nothing. Not even worth taking notice of certainly by God. Why would, he have, why would God have anything to do with us and, 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 and actually have us to be part of his plan? And the moment that I start to believe, the moment that I start to believe that the, that the world, what the world is telling me, that I'm a good man, that I worked hard for it, that I actually deserve my blessings, then I am toast, I'm gone. This is no longer grace. Grace is a sovereign act of God, totally apart from human effort or human will. This is why grace is so amazing. This is why grace is unmerited. Excessive focus on the self often leads to ungratefulness because we tend to pursue our own fulfilment, comfort, happiness. As Christians, we are not aware of it because we are so immersed in the spirit of the age. We should call it for what it is. It is sin. It rears its ugly head in different forms. Listen to yourself. Self-pity, grumbling, complaining, anger, defiance, 
often at the root of all these symptoms is the sin of ingratitude towards our gracious and sovereign Lord. And the Apostle Paul, and this is dangerous, the Apostle Paul said that one of the triggers for God's wrath on a society is this ungrateful attitude. And this is what he said in Romans chapter 1, verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, but listen, nor gave thanks to him. And I know you've read this passage many times, but isn't that interesting that the Apostle Paul highlights the fact that he, behind all of this attitude of rejecting God is this attitude of not giving thanks to him. Let's turn to Jesus. Remember that Jesus didn't say, if anyone, if anyone wants to follow me, I'll meet his every need so that he can be a happy chappy and, and, and live a comfortable life. This is what he said, actually, in, in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 35. If anyone w- wishes to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel shall save it. If you want to be a thankful person, let's start by putting less focus on yourself and your happiness and turn that around and put your focus on God, the Sovereign Lord. The more full of ourselves, the emptier we will become, less fulfilled. If we focus on God and his purposes, he graciously fills us with himself and meets our needs. So, the first part of David's prayer is what he has done, what God has done. And the second part is, for what he is like, verses 22 to 24. How great you are, sovereign Lord. There is no one like you, and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth that God went, to, went out to redeem as the people of himself, and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from, from before your people, whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people, Israel, as your very own forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. How great you are, sovereign Lord. Now, before his death... King Louis XIV of France requested that at his funeral in the Cathedral of Notre Dame, which has been burnt down, by the way. Um, so at his funeral in the cathedral, uh, that all would be darkened except for one candle that would be burning on his casket at the front. However, when the court preacher Mazillon rose to give the funeral sermon, he strode over to the casket, snuffed out the light and began his message. Only God is great. Only God is great. 
Ouch, right? There is this wonderful logic to praise. A very way, a very important way of knowing what God is like is by meditating on the things he has done. David's praise began with who I am. Well, who am I? Then he moves to declare how great you are. And now he asks with similar amazement, who is like your people Israel? He moves from his individual blessings to the blessings on the community that he belongs to, the people of Israel. And as unworthy though he was, the rest of Israel is also unworthy, unworthy though they were. Israel is so amazingly, wonderfully privileged because they are God's people. And the Lord was their God. And there was only one nation in all of the earth of whom this was true. So let's look at three important things in his prayer that he mentions. First of all, he says that Israel is redeemed. Redeemed out of Egypt for himself. Redeemed from and redeemed for. In this sense, we can say that God grants his people freedom, but not independence. There's a difference, right? They are to belong to him. They were redeemed from and redeemed for. One of the the sad catch cries of, of this age is, my body, my choice. Right? But contrast that with what the Bible says. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God, you are not your own, you were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. Something else that the people of Israel were, they were preserved. In this chapter, the words establish and forever are both used multiple times. David recognises that Israel is as permanent as his dynasty. Not because they are durable, but because God intends to keep them that way. The descendant of David, Jesus, went on to say, and, that, and this applies to us as God's people. What did he say? He says, no one can snatch them out of my father's hand. Isn't that a wonderful promise? No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. That is a promise of preservation. And then, of course, the third point is privilege. Israel is the people who have Yahweh, Jehovah, as their God. In that sense, we don't ask, who are these subjects but who is their king? The question is not, who are these sheep, but who is their shepherd? And Jesus went on to say to us, 
In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and do what? And glorify your Father in heaven. Look at all these people. Look at the stuff. Why are these Christians doing all of that? Oh, it's because they belong to God. That's why they're doing it. They're not doing it to feel good. They're doing it to glorify their Father who is in heaven. That's how privileged we are. Now, lastly, in the matter of prayer, there is petition and promise from verses 25 to 29. Petition and promise. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised, so that your name will be great forever. Then people will say, the Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established in your sight. Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, sovereign Lord, have spoken and with your blessing the house of your servant will be blessed forever. A very important lesson that David teaches us here is that prayer pleads promises. We touched on this last week, the promises of God, how it's all right throughout the scriptures. Prayer pleads promises. In David's words to God, what did he say here? He said, do as you promise. This is what he prays. He prays, do as you promise. All of David's petitions are based on God's promises. Now, we need to understand this because this, was a, 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 this wasn't a passive prayer that said, well, God, just do whatever you feel like doing. I don't really care one way or the other. Also, this wasn't an arrogant prayer that said, well, God, let me tell you what you should do. No, this was a, a bold prayer that said, God, here is your promise. Now I trust you to fulfill it and in faithfulness to your word. But how are we supposed to come to pray and understand God's promises if we don't know what they are? Where do we find them? Well, we find them in the scriptures. We find it in his his holy word. You might hear your pastor speak to you every Sunday from the Bible and remind you of the promises of God and the fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. But unless you personally meditate on God's word, the benefit you receive will be diluted. It will be much, much less. Look around. Look around in our world now. What does it look like to you? It looks like a mess, doesn't it? But isn't this what the Lord already told us was going to happen? 
in his word? Read the scriptures. It's all there. The, the Lord's plan is, is, is unfolding before our very eyes. It's happening just as he told us it would. What are we to do? We are to rely on God's promises. I like what uh, Spurgeon had a lot to say on God's promises. He actually has a, a devotional, one for 365 days of the year, on, on a promise of God for each day. And I like what he said on the matter. He said, um, and I quote, God sent these promises on purpose to be used. If I see a Bank of England note, it is a promise for a certain amount of money. And I take it and use it. But oh, my friend, do try and use God's promises. Nothing pleases God better than to see his promises put in circulation. He loves to see his children bring them up to him and say, Lord, do as thou hast said. And let me tell you that he glorifies God to use his promises. End of quote. In other words, through believing prayer like this, God promises and we appropriate these promises. But if we don't appropriate these promises in faith, God's promises are left unclaimed. Again, we might ask, why do we need to pray if God has already promised to do it? If he is sovereign and will accomplish his purposes, what, then what, what, what's the use of having to ask for it? Now, I don't claim to understand all the ways of the sovereign Lord, but I do know that part of the way that God brings about his sovereign purposes for us is through the persistent prayer of his people. God expects his servants who are recipients of his grace to take his promises and then to turn them into thankful prayer for his glory. This is why Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. You know these words well. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then what does he say? He says, your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is how we start the Lord's Prayer. Now let me go back to David's declaration, the question, the exclamation in amazement. David's exclamation was, who am I? And yes, it is an issue of identity. And if you call yourself a Christian and you're not clear on this, you're going to be confused. If you're constantly questioning your identity, if you don't read the scriptures, you're not in communion with God, you're going to start forgetting who you are as a child of God. Now, this was illustrated by an incident in the life of the, the famous German uh, theologian and philosopher Schleiermacher, Friedrich Schleiermacher, who lived in the 1800s. 
Now he brought together secular philosophical ideas of which there were many who were being spawned in in the 1800s and he mixed that together with biblical theology. And he is known as the father of modern liberal theology. Needless to say, his influence had disastrous consequences for evangelicalism. Uh, The story is told that one day, as an old man, he was sitting alone on a, on a bench in a city park and a policeman, thinking that he was a, a vagrant, came over and shook him and asked, Who are you? And Schleiermacher uh, replied sadly, he said, I wish I knew. You see, you start questioning the word of God, you mess around with it, you stop believing it, And soon you will question your very own identity before him. Now I realise that many of us are mired with many personal problems, that it's difficult, if not impossible, to lift our eyes and and to focus and to take in the sovereign promises and purposes of God. And, and this pandemic, I suppose, has, has brought to the surface many of our, of our old suppressed fears and, and insecurities. People are locked up and they're sort of slowly going crazy. In this sense, maybe we can relate a little more to the David who was running away and hiding in caves, always in survival mode hoping to just looking out for looking forward to the day when we're released we we could do we have our freedoms again maybe we can relate to that david in the cave more than david in the palace on the porch pondering a life but as we saw david didn't wait to get to the top didn't wait to be in his palace to praise god he was already, already praising God in the cave and he wrote psalms while he was in the cave because if you don't praise God in the cave you will not praise him in the palace. David did both and so should we. We do it now, whatever circumstance we are going through, whatever difficulties, and we do it now and this praise will continue into eternity it just continues we pray that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven and declare sovereign lord you are god hallowed be your name amen and may god bless us
song that is right what a great song by casting crowns it sort of brings it all together everything that we've been sharing this morning the the temporal nature of of us as 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 sinful human beings mortal human beings compared to the eternal nature of God and who he is and he's part of who he is and what we are he cares for us let me uh, bring it all together in this, in this wonderful doxology from Jude. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Saviour be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.